It is so wonderful to see everybody this morning in the house of God. We are excited that you have joined us today. We are starting a brand new series um, that's going to last uh, a, a, few, a, a few to several weeks. I'm navigating my way through this because this is a lot of stuff has happened over in my life over the last week of my life that um, is, is hard to digest all of it and figure out what God wants to do with it all, but I'm slowly getting to it. And one of them starts with this, with this sermon series. So just to give you a little bit of background, we uh, started fasting on January the 6th. And, and broke our fast this past Sunday, the 27th, which with, on a side note, which was probably the most powerful and most dynamic night of worship this church has ever experienced in its almost, in its five and a half year history. Um, and we've had some moments, we've had some nights of worship and we've had some moments on a Sunday morning, but what God did on Sunday night, last Sunday night at Rock Church was, wow, I, it's just words can't even express what God did. We live streamed it, and I have had comments and emails and text messages like, what is God doing? And I'm like, I don't know, but it's crazy. And so it was just these moments on Sunday night, and if you missed it, I, I'm so sorry that you missed it. Um, you can watch it uh, on, our, on, our, on our Facebook, my Facebook page. I'm the one who live streamed it directly, um, and it was... Um, but it was just powerful. Um, I encourage you not to miss the next one. This is something we are going to do a little bit more often just because these are great, great moments. And so leading up to that, I had been, we'd been fasting 21 days, Daniel fast. Um, and so I actually was sick the week prior. So my fast actually started a lot earlier. And so, um, but uh, praying through it, I was like, God, I don't really know. I kept praying, God, what do you want to do? What do you want me to do? What do you, I, I, when I seek the Lord, I oftentimes seek him for what do you want me to do? You know, how do you want me to lead? What initiatives do you want me to embark in? What, what kind of things are going on that you are calling me to do and to move in? And I prayed like that constantly for 19 days, every single day of the week and multiple times. And I really got nothing, which is hard for me to say because it doesn't happen often. So then I'm having a conversation with my wife on the 19th day, and she, of course, shared something with me that is not really what I wanted to hear, and I, but I thank God for, for her because she tells me things I don't want to hear all the time. And um, just kidding, although not really. You're good. So, but she said to me, I think God just wants you to seek him. And I was like, well, I am. No, not for anything, not for leadership ideas, not for direction, not for this, not for that, just, just to seek him. And so I began to pray that way. And so all day, all that rest of that day, that evening, the next day, all day, I began to pray that way. And then Sunday morning comes, and, I, and, and I'm just like, what is God doing? And this past Sunday, we had um, a missionary from Indonesia named Ben and Kathleen Struss were here with us and preached the gospel and did an amazing job. As a side note, they were fantastic. But God was just speaking to me during that message. And then with this great expectation came Sunday night. And so Sunday morning, God just did something in my life and in my heart that I was like, okay, what's he doing? And then Sunday night just was like, wow. And it was like this download of what God is calling me to do. And so there was this message idea that I had... Um, that I had to prepare to preach the Sunday that we canceled church for the weather. And um, it just, I, I, not the weather 
God sent weather to cancel what I was going to preach. My world is not that big. But, um, but it changed the timing of it, number one, but also changed the content of it, number two, through that time of fasting. So with that, I'll encourage you, if you're ever going through something and you're going and, you're, and you feel like you're doing all the right things for a season, let me just tell you, just keep doing it. Never give up. Never Never just decide to stop just because you haven't heard God in a time frame that you're expecting. Keep on pressing forward because God's going to give you something that literally changes your life. And I believe this has for me. And so from that came this series that I'm going to preach called Countercultural. And it's going to be interesting because we're going to preach it from several different contexts and, and, and messages within this series, but it's going to be the idea of living this countercultural life, and I'm going to share a little bit. This is not going to be in your notes, and it's not going to be on the screen because it's something that God has given me this morning through my time of prayer that, to set this up for you, but I'm going to share a little bit out of 1 Peter chapter 2 for just a few minutes, and then we'll get to the rest of this message, but 1 Peter chapter 2, you know, the Bible says, in verse, starting in verse number 4, says, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. So here he's saying, you're coming to Christ. Christ is the living cornerstone. He is the cornerstone, which if you're familiar with the cornerstone, the cornerstone is the chief stone. It's the first stone place. It's the foundational piece to everything that would be built around. If the corner isn't solid, then the building can kind of tumble down. And so he's saying that you're coming to this man, this man Jesus, who is the cornerstone of God's temple. And this cornerstone, imagine this important piece was rejected by everyone, but chosen by God. And he says, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. So imagine you, so him being the living cornerstone, you are living stones that he's using to build his temple. This is why the church is actually so critically important because you are meant to fit within the body of Christ in such a way that it, at, but that when it's all said and done, there's this glorious building that's built, not a physical, but the kingdom of God that is built. That's why the church is so important. The church is so important because it causes you to be in the body of Christ with the body of Christ, building the body of Christ. That's what the church does. And that's why it's so important because it gets you connected to what God is already trying to do. Then he goes on to say, he goes on to say, what's more, you are holy priests. So he says, I've created you a living stone to place and build you as I see feet fit, but my, there's expectations on your life, and those expectations are for you to be a holy priest, that through the meditation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. So as as you look at yourself, you are this living stone that he desires to build with, that you have an expectation of how you live. No, Christian on Sunday and cussing on Monday is not the expectation of the holy priest, just so y'all know. And so there's this expectation that God has placed on you. And then he says, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. 
And if you look at it like this, this cornerstone in this building, every single other stone around it has to trust him, trust this stone and its integrity and, its structure, and, its, and how structured it is in order to become what it's called to become. If you take that just in like the construction world, the, 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 the stones, the building that is at its heart, most important structurally, every other part has to trust this, this piece for its pro- purpose, for its process, for it to become what it's supposed to become. And so if you, when you place your trust in Jesus, you'll never be disgraced, which is interesting because Jesus himself was disgraced through the cross. But he says, if I, when you place your trust in him, you'll never be disgraced. Even if you would suffer the way Christ suffered, you still would never be disgraced. Simply because he will bring honor even to you. Why? He says, yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And so think about it. In your life, and I don't know about you, but maybe, maybe it's just me, but I've been rejected a time or two. I've had some, I had some issues that I had to work through with my, with my, with my own father and feel in the feelings of rejection. I've had some issues I had to work through with people, people who would look you in the face and tell you how wonderful things are and how me, how much you mean to their family. But the moment you turn, the knife gets dug so deep in your back, you can barely breathe. Uh, Maybe it's just me that I faced some rejection and some struggles and challenges that I've personally had to work through with God. And so with that rejection, with every single rejection, the enemy had a plan for that rejection. It was to derail you from this this purpose that God has for you to take this living stone out of its space and put it somewhere where it's going to become useless. Because if you walk around feeling rejected, you walk around feeling disgraced, and you walk around feeling empty and alone, you have really separated yourself from what God wants you to do and wants to do in your life. And so he's saying that those stones are the very stones that God is using to build his kingdom. And with Jesus, he used him to build the cornerstone. And he is a stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. That's an interesting phrase. Because you have Jesus, this holy son of God, who's now being called the stone that makes people stumble and the rock that makes them fall. Why is that? Interesting is because Jesus is the one who builds us, strengthens us, empowers us, forgives us, cleans us, places us where he wants us to be. And it's not necessarily him and his desire that causes folks to stumble. It's the people who live for him, who serve him, who glorify him, that others just cannot wrap their minds around. How can you do that? And they, they get separated. These would be unbelieving people, unchurched people. Some folks use the language lost people. They may not. I've I moved away from that phraseology a little bit just simply because I had a conversation with somebody once. And we talked about being lost. And he's like, I ain't lost. I know exactly where I am. Right? So it's like this stigma of like, I, I, I'm lost. Every, every Christian thinks that I'm lost because I'm not a Christian. I just simply call him a non-believer or an unchurched person. And so... But the idea is they stumble at the thought of you living and serving God the way that you do. And here's what it says. They stumble, and here's, here's to reinforce that idea, the very next part of the verse. They stumble because they do not know, they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you are not like that. Here we go. We're going into, again, God's expectation. You are a chosen people. 
You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. That's what God predestined for every one of us, to be called out of the darkness into his wonderful light. And then he goes, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. This is a countercultural way of living. This is the expectation of the believer who once had no identity, but now is God's chosen person. You know, oftentimes we try to find our identity in what we do, whether it be our giftings and our abilities in leadership or singing or in athletics or whatever that may look like or, art, or in the arts. We have this, we, we build our identity based on these things or we build our identity based on relationships that we are in, whether it be our spouse or our neighbors or our parents or our children or whatever the case. I've met people who have literally said who are freaking out. And I'm not going to lie and suggest that I'm not a little bit, but people who are freaking out that once their house is empty and they've sent their kids off to college and to live their own life, that now it's just them and their spouse. And they're freaked out like, what if we don't like each other? What if we have nothing to say to each other? And, 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 and while that is, there is a sliver of truth and challenge in that idea and me being getting ready to send my first off to college at the end of this year and knowing I have another one on her, on, on her heels just a few years later, I'm not going to lie and say, man, I hope we have something to talk about because I have. But if, if we walk that out, we've placed our identity in that relationship rather than in Christ. And so we do that all of us, in some capacity, some way, shape, or form, our children establish our identity, our jobs, our talents, whatever the case is, they establish our identities. And it's so difficult to have this countercultural living that, that God has called us to when our identity is found anywhere other than in Christ. And I, it's one of the things that that's one of the things that, I, that I, try to, I try to portray to people that don't worry about the things that you want to do because God's going to call you and cause you and qualify you to do things that he wants you to do and they're going to supersede anything that you've ever wanted to do. Perfect example is my call to ministry. I was successful. I was working hard. I was making good money. I had a big house. I, I had all these worldly things that were, that, that were nice and comfortable, but I never really had this undying passion or this amazing peace or this amazing fulfillment. Yeah, I enjoyed life. Don't get me wrong. But the day that God called me out of all of that and into ministry full time, I stepped into this ministry and it was a youth pastor position in Laredo, Texas. And while I stepped into this spot, the one feeling and the one thing that I knew that has been the most powerful moment of all of my life. And is that the lights just go out on me? Okay. I just want to make sure I hadn't lost something. But the most powerful moment of my life was the idea that I am right smack dab in the center of God's will for my life. And for me, that was preaching the gospel. For me, that was ministry full time. But that's not the case for everyone. And so whatever that is, that's to find that space and to find that spot is what it means to have this countercultural living. You hear a title like countercultural and you think, oh, someone's just trying to be different. 
Someone's just trying to say something different or speak something different. And that's actually not the case. I'm just speaking something very old. And this is what God's called you and caused you to do. And so I'm excited about these next several weeks as we talk about this idea of living counterculturally. We're going to talk about countercultural living right now for the next few minutes. Then we're going to talk about next week, we're going to actually talk about countercultural relationships. And that's going to be awesome. You're going to, you're going to want to bring and invite friends to hear that message. Um, so in the idea of this countercultural living, I'm using the passage of Scripture, 12, Romans chapter 12, verse number 1 and 2. And the Bible says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all there is. Let there be light. And light was. Look at that. Although now I can't see my notes for a second. <laughs> <laughs> it flashed to be pretty good there. All right. So, dear brothers, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. There's some things in this passage of scripture I want to highlight just very briefly, but there's a couple of things in this passage of scripture that, that he says, he says he's pleading with you to offer, to give your body to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. By sacrificing myself and giving myself to God, my, the expectation is that I'm living. It's not I cease to live. It's not, see, people have this idea that, well, if I surrender myself fully to God, that I'm going to end up not having fun in life. And I'm just having too much fun in life, but that's not, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you are going to continue living. And that phrase living literally means to enjoy life. So he says, surrender them as a living sacrifice, one that's holy and righteous that he will find acceptable. Then he goes on to say, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. That's where it starts to get countercultural. Because culture would suggest this is how you act, this is how you live, this is how you serve, this is how you work. If somebody disagrees with you, they hate you. If somebody disagrees with you, you can't be friends. All these types of things, right? That's the culture that we live in today. To live counter to that would simply be to not copy the behaviors and customs of that world. But let God transform you into the new person. And how does he do that? By changing the way you think. Because the way you think is going to absolutely determine your path, going to determine your outlook, to determine where you head. And, and not only that, but it's going to determine how healthy you get there. Very simply, the way you think being one of the most powerful things that God, and it's the first place that God starts. He comes, to, comes into your heart, but the very first thing that changes is the way you think. And so he says, and by changing the way you think, it's only once you've changed the way you think that you will learn to know God's will. Everybody wants to know God's will, but they're not usually willing to change the way they think. They want to know what God's purpose for them, but I don't really want to change what I think about and how I think. God, here's what I need you to do. I need you to leave my thought process alone, but on top of that, tell me what your will is for my life. That's countercultural to God, which is not going to ever be successful. And here's why that's important. By, by knowing, by, by allowing him to change the way I think, I'll learn to know his will. And here's what's great about his will. It's good. And it's pleasing. And most importantly, it's perfect. 
That's why I told you when I had that moment, nothing, I'm not suggesting that from that moment till today, everything in life's been perfect. Matter of fact, far from it. It's been a whole lot worse since I've been in ministry as far as, as far as circumstances than I ever experienced outside of ministry. And so it's like that, but that moment brought so much peace because I was like, man, I'm in the perfect will of God. And can I tell you, the perfect will of God is not what makes you feel good. It's not what makes you smile. See, we think in our limited thinking, if I hate my job and I hate my boss, then it must not be God's will. We have this idea that if it's God's will, it's good and pleasing and perfect means good for me. Makes me happy, makes me smile, makes me successful, makes everything roses and, and unicorns and rainbows. And I walk, out to, I walk out my door every day to birds chirping. I walk out to basically a Disney movie. And that's life. Because I've stepped out of my door and there's, behold, Disney. What I look at, it's interesting because we look out the window, we don't necessarily see that, but we walk out and there's rainbows and all this wonderful and birds start saying hello to us in the morning. And let me tell you something. Last night I had to pump out almost 20,000 gallons of water from my basement. There were no rainbows. There were no unicorns. There was nothing exciting about that moment. As a matter of fact, I was outside shoveling eight inches of snow off my patio, hoping to stop the waters from coming in. Nothing rainbows about that. Nothing Disney about that. But it, had, but it did not. It did not control my joy. It did not control whether I felt like God's good, pleasing, and perfect will was not going on in my life. So let's, let's lose the idea that good, pleasing, and perfect means it's good for me, it's pleasing to me, and it's perfect to me. It's good for you. It's pleasing for you. And it's perfect for you. But it definitely may not be perfect to you. Amen? So, but that's the, pro- that's the process. By, by engaging with Christ in this way, we start to learn these things. We start to know these things. So here's what we're going to talk about as, as it relates to countercultural living. There is this thing that I, I, that I, that I will call countercultural faith. should be in your notes. There's a few blanks for you today. Not a whole lot. Keeping it easy for you today. But there's this idea of countercultural faith. And I, I, I believe in order to live a countercultural life, we have, this, have to have this countercultural faith. We need to be known, simply put, we need to be known for what we're for rather than what we are against. You know, I shared that last week when I made a statement about the new abortion law in New York. And, and, as, and for clarification, because I got a couple, I got some pushback on a couple of messages uh, based on my statement no, in no way, shape, or form am I advocating for not standing up for truth and what's right. But I am advocating for love and embracing everyone, including the ones who write the laws that we adamantly disagree with. And so, yes, stand up for what is right. But in that, understand, am I loving as I'm doing it? But that's the thing, is, is to be known for what you're for rather than what you're against. We oftentimes place this prefix in front of things called anti. You know, I am anti-abortion. I am anti 
this. I am anti-homosexuality. I am anti-this. And, and we put this, this stigma on ourselves and on the church as being judgmental, of being hateful, of being disregarding of other people's feelings and ideas and thoughts. And the truth is, if you are truly known for what you're for, you don't ever have to speak about what you're against. That's the way that works. If you're truly known for what you're for, people will always know what you are against. If we always react against culture with frustration, with anger, with bitterness, and with pounding, people are going to look at you and say, you're not for, that's not love. In my limited viewpoint of what love is, that doesn't really look like love. Yes, it might very well be true. This is sin that we are talking about, but Jesus loved the sinner. He dined with the sinner. And everyone around him looked at him and mocked him and said, what are you doing eating with that man? He's a crook. What are you doing going into that person's house? They're not clean. What are you doing let, talking to this, 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 this woman who's an adulterer? What are you doing talking to her? Matter of fact, what are you doing accepting a drink from her? Jesus lived a countercultural life, not to be different, but to counter the hate and the, and the stress and everything that the world was causing to other people. He decided, I'm going to live counter to that. It's not about being different. It's not about, oh, look at me, I'm countercultural. It's the hipster thing to do right now. No, it's literally looking and acting different than the people around you. And some of those folks around you are the very ones that will pick this thing up and beat you over the head with it. You live counter to that idea as well, because that to me, not Christianity. So we have this idea of countercultural faith. And so I've had some friends that have pastored and planted churches, and you can see so many of these all over the place. But this particular person that I knew would take this unbelievable amount of passion and energy and effort he had and put it into, I am going to make sure everyone knows that we are the church that stands against, and you fill in the blank. And he put all of his efforts and his passions to being against culture, the very things that, that we rise up against. Here's what happens. Because here's what, when you place all your passion and all those things into these things that you're anti, the very thing that happens is that these things that you are, that you are against start to rise up and become your focal point for your conversations, your focal point for your messages, your focal point for your sharing of faith. Your sharing of faith becomes about Jesus and this. It's the danger, especially in today's society, where you have churches that are popping up in the name of justice, in the name of equal opportunity, in the name of of righting wrongs, which are absolutely critically necessary, but the danger is they begin to flirt too much with being activists than being Jesus-centered. They'll do it saying they're Jesus-centered, but the reality is people who are the onlookers are seeing and saying, I know they stand for this and stand against this, but are they really pointing people to the cross? Because at the end of the day, black, white, Hispanic, old, young, poor, poor and wealthy makes no difference where we come from. We all are gonna meet the same fate. 
We're all going to eventually at some point in time expire from our time on this earth. And yes, there are injustices. Yes, there are things that are wrong. And yes, we need to stand up for that and stand against those things, but not as the focal point of who we are. The focal point of who we are is I am a child of God. And yes, I will stand for righteousness. And yes, I will stand for justice. And I will stand for all things being equal. But we have to do it in a way that is very careful because otherwise others will associate you with what you are against. And therefore, you will lose your opportunity to minister to them. And so that's a very, very critical thing because at the end of the day, we're actually supposed to Seek and say, help, like not help Jesus, because we, we don't need to do that, but be the conduit that Jesus uses to seek and save those that are lost, those that are unbelievers, those that are unchurched. And if, we, if, if the way we present ourselves and present our beliefs contradict our ability to do that, then we have to sit back and evaluate what's going on. So here's, here's the thing you have to understand about the cross, and we're going to share this for a minute, and then I'm going to give you some practicality walkthrough in life, and then we will be finished for the morning. There's two sides to the cross, okay? Understand that there are two sides to the cross. One side is against. All humanity stood against Jesus in that moment. Even the people who walked with him were the ones who abandoned him. And so... All humanity stood against Jesus in that moment. And one side is for Jesus. And that's even illustrated with the thieves that were standing, that were hung to his left and to his right. You have one who's mocking him, one who's standing against him. And then on the other side, you had one who acknowledges him and says, Please, Jesus, forgive me and remember me in paradise. Right? So there's two sides to the cross. But Jesus is on this side. That was for life and for hope and for grace and for, sal- and for our salvation. Again, illustrated when he leaned over to the thief on the cross and said, you will be with me in paradise. A criminal dying a death he deserved based on their law. And he says, you will be with me in paradise. Bible doesn't say anything about what he said to the other person, does it? So there's this side of love. There's this side of grace. And we stood against Jesus, but he never took that stand against us. Including, but not limited to, everyone who hates today, they, they're taking a stand against Jesus, but Jesus, even in that, is never taking a stand against them. Because he's never done that. He could have done the same very thing prior to going to the cross. He could have, in all of his righteousness, looked upon them and say, do you even know how screwed up you are right now? The thing that you're doing, you're you're treating me like a criminal. I'm about to die. You're going to kill me for something I didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do that. He embraced what was coming. Because here's what I believe. When you are truly for something, when you are truly for grace, and you're truly for love, and you're truly for Jesus, everyone will know what you're against. And it doesn't even have to be the topic of conversation. Yes, it can be the topic of, of, of personal conversation with other people who you're familiar with. If you want to have that conversation about abortion, you want to have that conversation about sin, you can have those conversations in a graceful and loving way. My, my, my 17-year-old daughter just did it yesterday on the volleyball court. She's, when they were, they were resting between a tournament and she had, they had, their team had to 
to, to be the referee assistance and help. She was doing the book, and this other young lady was doing the score, and this other young lady was doing another activity. They're sitting at the table together, and these three high school seniors start to have a conversation about abortion. Think about it. That's what this world does. The world will give you a million opportunities to love someone to Jesus. And the one girl, she, was, she, heard, she expressed her opinions and her ideas, how she was pro-choice. And, and, and my daughter just gracefully listened to her. Not fighting and disagreeing with her, not telling her she's da-da-da-da-da. And she was able to have this conversation. And by knowing who she was, knowing that she was this believer, knowing that she served God, she didn't have to ask her what her thoughts were. She knew what her thoughts were. When people truly know what you're for, they will always know what you're against. And you don't ever have to stand on a platform screaming it at people. It's not necessary. Again, part of that is my opinion. Part of that is I believe this is what the Bible means when it talks about loving our neighbor as ourself. Our neighbor is not always what's next door. But there's two sides to the cross, and you have to figure out which side you're going to stand. Are you going to stand on the side that judges everyone, or are you going to stand on the side that loves everyone? And let, just so we can get this out of the way, my disagreeing with or calling something sin is not judgment. Judgment will come from the Father, not from me. However, on earth, I'm biblically correct to judge the fruit that comes from people's lives. It's, it's a biblical, biblically correct to judge fruit that comes from people's lives, to look at a life, to see what's coming out, and to make assessments to bring correction. Otherwise, people will say, well, you can't judge me. Well, then why does, why, why does God empower the body of Christ to bring restoration to your sinful brother? That's, that's judgment, wouldn't it be? It's not. It's become cultural judgment, but it's not actual judgment. All right going to wrap this message up with three things as we keep it practical. Three things as we keep it practical. Number one, well, let me share the passage of scripture that we're going to draw them from first. Micah chapter six, verses six to eight. The prophet is responding. He says, they say, what, sh- what can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings Should we bow before the Most High with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sin? Understand contextually, before we finish this passage of Scripture out, we have the nation of Israel that is at odds with God, the Father. Again. Yes, again. It's a constant in Scripture in the Old Testament. He's mapping out their guilt. And as the passage continues, in the second half, continues past verse 8, where we're going to stop at is their punishment. There's a laid out punishment for their sin. But Israel was so focused on the external religious viewpoints that they continually asked God, do we do this? Do we do that? What do we do? How much do we have to give you to, to earn your forgiveness. And then his response in verse 8 is simply, no, O people, the Lord has taught you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly 
with your God. That's counter-cultural living. Worship team, come on and get set real quick. Do what is right. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. The, the simple idea of do what is right. It's a premise that you can even find all through Scripture, but specifically in James chapter 4, verse number 17. He says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. See, we want to categorize sin as all these big, mega, massive things, but sin is simply to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Let me tell you how simple and how minuscule that gets. God tells you to go speak to someone. You don't do it. It's called sin. That's that serious. It's called sin. God prompts you to give to someone, do something to bless someone, and you don't do it. It's called sin. It's not just big things. It's not just adultery. It's not just all these massive, huge things. It's even small things. It is sin to know what you ought to do, then not do it. It's two parts. There's a do. There's an act. Matter of fact, in some versions, it says act justly. Do what is right. Not just what is believed, but to do what is right. That word right literally means justly. It, it's used, it's actually a legal term to determine the points of a case before the judge. It reflects, here's, here's what you have to understand. Do what is right is a reflection of evidentiary proof that you have done what is legally right in the eyes of God. This is a very, this is a very law-abiding word that's used by Micah. The judge of Israel you would come be just like you do anywhere else. You'd come before the judge, present your case, present the proof of what you've done. That's what this means. To love justice, to walk, to do justice, to do what is right literally means I can stand before God the Father and have evidentiary proof that I've done what was right. Not just because I believed in something that was right, but I have done. This changes things. It takes it from a it takes the form of proof, and it takes it from this belief to this action. This changes even the measuring stick of what is right. Because you're relying on it to be just about what we believe. He then said, love mercy. So do what is right, love mercy. Another one that's also two parts. Love is a noun in this, in this word, in this, in this passage of scripture, not a verb. It's a noun that actually describes mercy. I adore mercy. I have affection for mercy. I have this inclination towards mercy, suggesting that the way we look at, um, when we look at mercy, we look at it with this adoration or this affection. Do we look at mercy that way? Do we, are we merciful because God says to be merciful, or do we look at the, somebody and extend mercy because we do it out of a place of affection and adoration? Because that's what that word love means. It's descriptive in that text. It's not actually an action in that text. And the word mercy is simply defined as how we treat others. It refers to doing favors or showing benefits with exceeding kindness. 
especially towards those in need. Mercy is about showing kindness, exceeding kindness to those that are in need, not just physical needs, but in every way. This word occurs 247 times in, this, in scripture, and every single one of them is showing loving kindness to someone in need. It's the mercy is the action part. Love is the description part. Mercy is the action part. I must do something. And the last one is this. Walk humbly. See, unlike the other two parts of this passage, this is done actually not just in two parts, but actually in three parts. When it says walking literally means to make a journey, to go on a journey. So when it says walk humbly, it means you're on a journey moving in a direction of humility. It actually suggests the idea of coming closer to. So when you're on this journey of faith, you are journeying towards humility. We will rarely ever arrive and be this ultimate humble person, but we're on this journey of humility. We are coming closer and closer to humility. And the phrase humbly, this definition in this specific context means something completely different than anywhere else this word is used. It actually means, it, it, looks, it, it thinks of ourselves as we should. We desire that God be honored even at the expense of our own honor is what that, that word means. It's not reducing myself. It's not thinking less of myself. It's actually saying, God, I want you to have honor even if it costs me my own. The only other time this word is used in all of scripture is when it describes the way Jesus went onto the cross. That God, you receive glory, that you receive honor, even at my own expense. The life and journey of Christ was one continued journey of humility. The life and journey of you and I to live counterculturally literally means to journey towards God. Journey towards holiness. Journey towards righteousness. Journey towards humility. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12. Since God chose you to be the holy people, to be holy people, he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. With God is the point. The point of humility is to simply walk with God the way he desires. Remember, he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your presence in this place this morning. I thank you for your word. God, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides even bone from marrow. God, I thank you for all that you speak into our hearts. And this idea of living counterculturally is not just about being different, but it's simply about resisting and turning and looking different than the rest of this world looks. And you've given us the instruction. You've given us the word to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. If you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment, I want you to picture this journey. 
to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with